This is section five of Mark Twain by Archibald Henderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Humorist, Part Two, read by John Greenman. According to Mark Twain's classification, the comic story is English, the witty story French, the humorous story American, while the other two depend upon matter. The humorous story depends for its effect upon the manner of telling. The witty story and the comic story must be concise and end with a point, but the humorous story may be as leisurely as you please and have no particular destination. Mark Twain always maintained that, while anyone could tell effectively a comic or witty story, it required a person skilled in an art of rare and distinctive character to tell a humorous story successfully. Mark Twain was himself the supreme exemplar of the art of telling a humorous story. Take this little passage, for example, which convulsed one of his London audiences. He was speaking of a high mountain that he had come across in his travels. It is so cold that people who have been there find it impossible to speak the truth i know that's a fact here a pause a blank stare a shake of the head a little stroll across the platform a sigh a puff a smothered groan <clears throat> because i've another pause been a longer pause there myself who could equal mark twain as a humorous narrator in his recital of the alarums and excursions criminations and recriminations over the story of someone else's dog he sold to general miles for three dollars he delighted numerous audiences with his story of inveighing mrs grover cleveland at a white house reception into writing blindly on the back of a card he didn't when she turned it over she discovered that it bore on the other side in mrs clemens handwriting the startling words don't wear your arctics in the white house I shall never forget his recital of the story of how his enthusiasm oozed away at a meeting in behalf of foreign missions. So moving was the fervid eloquence of the exhorter that, after fifteen minutes, if Mark Twain had had a blank check with him, he would gladly have turned it over, signed to the minister, to fill out for any amount. But it was a very warm evening. The eloquence of the minister was inexhaustible, and Mark Twain's enthusiasm for foreign missions slowly oozed away one hundred dollars, fifty dollars, and even lower still, so that when the plate was actually passed around, Mark put in ten cents and took out a quarter. I was a witness in London and at Oxford in 1907 of the vast, spontaneous, national reception which Mark Twain received from the English people. One incident of that memorable visit is a perfect example of that masterly power over an audience, that deep humanity with which Mark Twain was endowed. 
at the banquet presided over by the lord mayor of liverpool which was the signal of mark twain's farewell to the english people his peroration was as follows many and many a year ago i read an anecdote in dana's two years before the mast a frivolous little self-important captain of a coasting sloop in the dried apple and kitchen furniture trade was always hailing every vessel that came in sight just to hear himself talk and air his small grandeurs one day a majestic indiaman came plowing by with course on course of canvas towering into the sky her decks and yards swarming with sailors with macaws and monkeys and all manner of strange and romantic creatures populating her rigging and there too her freightage of precious spices lading the breeze with gracious and mysterious odors of the orient of course the little coaster captain hopped into the shrouds and squeaked a hail ship ahoy what ship is that and whence and whither in a deep and thunderous bass came the answer back through a speaking trumpet the begum of bengal a hundred and twenty-three days out from canton homeward bound what ship is that the little captain's vanity was all crushed out of him and most humbly he squeaked back only the mary ann fourteen hours from boston bound for kittery point with with nothing to speak of that eloquent word only expressed the deeps of his stricken humbleness and what is my case during perhaps one hour in the twenty-four not more than that i stop and reflect then i am humble then i am properly meek and for that little time i am only the marie anne fourteen hours out and cargoed with vegetables and tinware but all the other twenty-three my self-satisfaction rides high and i am the stately indiaman ploughing the great seas under a cloud of sail and laden with a rich freightage of the kindest words that were ever spoken to a wandering alien i think my 
twenty-six crowded and fortunate days multiplied by five and i am the begum of bengal a hundred and twenty-three days out from canton homeward bound says charles vale in describing the scene the audience sat spellbound in almost painful silence till it could restrain itself no longer and when in rich resonant uplifted voice mark twain sang out the words i am the begum of bengal a hundred and twenty-three days out from canton there burst forth a great cheer from one end of the room to the other it seemed an inopportune cheer and for a moment it upset the orator yet it was felicitous in opportuneness slowly after a long pause came the last two words like that curious detached and high note in which a great piece of music suddenly ends homeward bound again there was a cheer but this time it was lower it was subdued it was the fitting echo to the beautiful words with their double significance the parting from a hospitable land the return to the native land only a great literateur could have conceived such a passage only a great orator could have so delivered it mark twain was the greatest master of the anecdote this generation has known he claimed the humorous story as an american invention and one that has remained at home his public speeches were little mosaics in the finesse of their art and the intricacies of inflection insinuation jovial innuendo which mark twain threw into his gestures his implicative pauses his suggestive shrugs and deprecative nods all these are hopelessly volatized and disappear entirely from the printed copy of his speeches he gave the most minute and elaborate study to the preparation of his speeches polishing them dexterously and rehearsing every word every gesture with infinite care yet his readiness and fertility of resource in taking advantage and making telling use of things in the speeches of those immediately preceding him were striking evidences of the rapidity of his thought processes in boston when asked what he thought about the existence of a heaven or a hell he looked grave for a moment and then replied i don't want to express an opinion it's policy for me to keep silent you see i have friends in both places his speech introducing general hawley of connecticut to a republican meeting at elmira new york is an admirable example of his laconic art general hawley is a member of my church at hartford and the author of beautiful snow maybe he will deny that but i am only here to give him a character from his last place as a pure citizen i respect him as a personal friend of years 
I have the warmest regard for him. As a neighbor, whose vegetable garden adjoins mine, why, why, I watch him. As the author of Beautiful Snow, he has added a new pang to winter. He is a square, true man in honest politics, and I must say he occupies a mighty lonesome position. So broad, so bountiful is his character that he never turned a tramp empty-handed from his door, but always gave him a letter of introduction to me. Pure, honest, incorruptible, that is Joe Hawley. Such a man in politics is like a bottle of perfumery in a glue factory. It may modify the stench, but it doesn't destroy it. I haven't said any more of him than I would say of myself. Ladies and gentlemen, this is General Hawley. Mr. Chesterton maintains that Mark Twain was a wit rather than a humorist, perhaps something more than a humorist. Wit, he explains, requires an intellectual athleticism, because it is akin to logic. A wit must have something of the same running, working, and staying power as a mathematician or a metaphysician. Moreover, wit is a fighting thing and a working thing. A man may enjoy humor all by himself. He may see a joke when no one else sees it. He may see the point and avoid it. But wit is a sword. It is meant to make people feel the point as well as see it. All honest people saw the point of Mark Twain's wit. Not a few dishonest people felt it. The epigram, be virtuous and you will be eccentric, has become a catchword, and everyone has heard Mark Twain's reply to the reporter asking for advice as to what to cable his paper, which had printed the statement that Mark Twain was dead. Say that the statement is greatly exaggerated. He has admirably taken off humanity's enduring self-conceit in the statement that there isn't a parallel of latitude, but thinks it would have been the equator if it had had its rights. There is something peculiarly American in his warning to young girls not to marry, that is, not to excess. His remarks on compliments have a delightful and naive freshness. He points out how embarrassing compliments always are. It is so difficult to take them naturally. You never know what to say. He had received many compliments in his lifetime, and they had always embarrassed him. He always felt that they hadn't said enough. The incident of Mark Twain's first meeting with Whistler is quaintly illustrative of one phase of his broader humor. Mark Twain was taken by a friend to Whistler's studio, just as he was putting the finishing touches to one of his fantastic studies. 
confident of the usual commendation whistler inquired his guest's opinion of the picture mark twain assumed the air of a connoisseur and approaching the picture remarked that it did very well but he didn't care much for that cloud and suiting the action to the word appeared to be on the point of rubbing the cloud with his gloved finger in genuine horror whistler exclaimed don't touch it the paint's wet oh that's all right replied mark with his characteristic drawl these aren't my best gloves anyhow whereat whistler recognized a congenial spirit and their first hearty laugh together was the beginning of a friendly and congenial relationship i recall an incident in connection with the writing of his autobiography on more than one occasion he declared that the autobiography was going to be something awful as caustic fiendish and devilish as he could make it actually he was in the habit of jotting on the margin of the page opposite to some startling characterization or diabolic joke not to be published until ten or twenty or thirty years after my death one day i heard him vent his pent-up rage in bitter and caustic words upon a certain strenuous limelight american politician i could not resist the temptation to ask him if this too were going into the autobiography oh yes he replied decisively everything goes in i make no exceptions but he added reflectively with the suspicion of a twinkle in his eye i shall make a note beside this passage not to be published until one hundred and fifty years after my death mark twain had numerous doubles scattered about the world the number continually increased once a month on an average he would receive a letter from a new double enclosing a photograph in proof of the resemblance mark once wrote to one of these doubles as follows my dear sir many thanks for your letter with enclosed photograph your resemblance to me is remarkable in fact to be perfectly honest you look more like me than i look like myself i was so much impressed by the resemblance that i have had your picture framed and am now using it regularly in place of a mirror to shave by yours gratefully s l clemens although not generally recognized it is undoubtedly true that mark twain was a wit as well as a humorist he was the author of many epigrams and curt aphorisms which have become stock phrases in conversation quoted in all classes of society wherever the english language is spoken his phrasing is unpretentious even homely wearing none of the polished brilliancy of la rochefoucauld or bernard shaw but mark twain's sayings stick because they are rooted in shrewdness and hard common sense 
Mark Twain's warning to the two burglars who stole his silverware from Stormfield and were afterwards caught and sent to the penitentiary is very amusing, though not highly complimentary to American political life. Now you two young men have been up to my house stealing my tinware and got pulled in by these Yankees up here. You had much better have stayed in New York, where you have the pull. Don't you see where you're drifting? They'll send you from here down to Bridgeport Jail, and the next thing you know you'll be in the United States Senate. There's no other future left open to you." The sign he posted after the visitation of these same burglars was a prominent ornament of the billiard-room at Stormfield. Notice to the next burglar there is nothing but plated ware in this house now and henceforth. You will find it in that brass thing in the dining-room over in the corner by the basket of kittens. If you want the basket, put the kittens in the brass thing. Do not make a noise. It disturbs the family. You will find rubbers in the front hall by that thing which has the umbrellas in it. Chiffonier, I think they call it, or pergola, or something like that. Please close the door when you go away. Very truly yours, S. L. Clemens. Now these are examples of Mark Twain's humor, American humor, such as we are accustomed to expect from Mark Twain humor not unmixed with a strong spice of wit. But Mark Twain was capable of wit, pure and unadulterated, curt and concise. I once saw him write in a young girl's birthday book an aphorism which he said was one of his favorites. Truth is our most valuable possession. Let us economize it. The advice he once gave me as to the proper frame of mind for undergoing a surgical operation has always remained in my memory. Console yourself with the reflection that you are giving the doctor pleasure, and that he is getting paid for it. Peculiarly memorable in his forthright dictum that the statue which advertises its modesty with a fig-leaf brings its modesty under suspicion. His business motto, unfortunately a motto that he never followed, has often been attributed, because of its canny shrewdness, to Mr. Andrew Carnegie. The idea was to put all your eggs in one basket, and then watch that basket. His anti-puritanical convictions find concrete expression in his assertion that few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Truly classic in usage, if not in form, is his happy saying that faith is believing what you know ain't so. His definition of a classic, as a book which people praise but don't read, is as frequently heard as are biblical and Shakespearean tags. Mr. Clemens once told me that he had composed between two and three hundred maxims during his life many of them, especially those from the old and new calendars of Pudenhead Wilson, 
bear the individual and peculiar stamp of mark twain's phraseology and outlook upon life quaint genial and shrewd in pursuance of his deep-rooted belief in the omnipotent power of training he remarked that the peach was once a bitter almond the cauliflower nothing but cabbage with a college education he himself was not guiltless of that irreverence which he defined as disrespect for another man's god women took an almost unholy delight in describing some of their undesirable acquaintances in mark twain's phrase as neither quite refined nor quite unrefined but just the kind of person that keeps a parrot at times mark twain realized the sanctifying power of illusions in a world of harsh realities for he asserted that when illusions are gone you may still exist but you have ceased to live a depressing sense of world weariness sometimes overbore the native joyousness of his temperament and he expressed his sense of deep gratitude to adam the first great benefactor of the race because he had brought death into the world a funeral always gave mark twain a sense of spiritual uplift a sense of thankfulness because the dead friend had been set free he thought it was far harder to live than to die in one of his early sketches there was admirable wit in the suggestion to the organist for a hymn appropriate to a sermon on the prodigal son oh we'll all get blind drunk when johnny comes marching home and in the innocents abroad there is the same sort of brilliant wit in the mad logic of his innocent query on learning that st philip neri's heart was so inflamed with divine love that it burst his ribs i was curious to know what philip had for dinner mark twain was capable of epigrams worthy in their dark levity of swift himself in speaking of pudd'nhead wilson anna e keeling has said humor there is in almost every scene and every page but it is such humor as sheds a wild gleam on the greatest shakespearean tragedies on the deep melancholy of hamlet the heartbreak of lear the greatest ironic achievements of mark twain in brief compass are the two stories the man that corrupted hadleyburg and was it heaven or hell they reveal the power and subtlety of his art as an ironic humorist or shall we rather say ironic wit for they range all the way from the most mordant to the most pathetic irony from mephistophelian laughter to warm human tears sunt lacrimae rerum make a reputation first by your more solid achievements counseled oliver wendell holmes you can't expect to do anything great with macbeth if you first come on flourishing paul pry's umbrella mark twain has had to pay in full the penalty of comic greatness the world is loath to accept a popular character at any rating other than its own whosoever sets himself the task of amusing the world must realize the almost insuperable difficulty of inducing the world to regard him as a serious thinker says moliere 
c'est une étrange entreprise que celle de faire rire les honnêtes gens the strangeness of the undertaking is no less pronounced than the rigor of its obligations mark twain began his career as a professional humorist and fun-maker he frankly donned the motley the cap and bells the man in the street is not easily persuaded that the basis of the comic is not uncommon nonsense but glorified common sense the french have a fine flavored distinction in ce qui remue from ce qui émeut and if remuage is the defining characteristic of a tramp abroad roughing it and the innocents abroad there is much of deep seriousness and genuine emotion in life on the mississippi tom sawyer huckleberry finn and pudd'nhead wilson in the course of his lifetime mark twain evolved from a fun-maker into a masterly humorist from a sensational journalist into a literary artist in explanation of this let us recall the steps in that revolution in his youth this boy had no schooling worth speaking of he lived in an environment that promised only stagnation and decay as the young boy barefooted and dirty watched the steamboats pass and repass upon the surface of that great inland deep the mississippi he conceived the ambition and the ideal of learning to know and to master that mysterious water his dream in time was realized he not only became a pilot but which is infinitely more significant he changed from a callow indolent unobservant lad with undeveloped faculties to a man a master of the river with a knowledge which in its accuracy and minuteness was for its purpose all-sufficient and complete i have always felt that had it not been for this training in the great university of the mississippi mark twain might never have acquired that trained faculty for minute detail and descriptive elaboration without which his works full of flaws as they are might never have revealed the very real art which they betray for the art of mark twain is the art of taking infinite pains the art of exactitude precision and detail humor per se is as ephemeral as the laugh dying in the very moment of its birth art alone can give it enduring vitality mark twain's native temperament rich with humor and racy of the soil drank in the wonder of the river and unfolded through communication with all its rude human devotees the quick mind the eager susceptibility developed and matured through rigorous education in particularity and detail and before his spirit the very beauties of nature herself disappeared in face of a consuming sense of the work of the world that must be done mark twain never wholly escaped the penalty that his reputation as a humorist compelled him to pay he became more than popular novelist more than a jovial entertainer he became a public institution as unmistakable and as national as the library of congress or the democratic party even in the latest years of his life though long since dissociated in fact from the category of artemus ward john phoenix josh billings and 
petroleum v nasby mark twain could never be sure that his most solemn utterance might not be drowned in roars of thoughtless laughter it has been a very serious and a very difficult matter mr clemens once said to me to doff the mask of humor with which the public is accustomed in thought to see me adorned it is the incorrigible practice of the public in this or in any country to see only humor in the humorist however serious his vein not long ago i wrote a poem which i never dreamed of giving to the public on account of its seriousness but on being invited to address the women students at a certain great university i was persuaded by a near friend to read this poem at the close of my lecture i said now ladies i am going to read you a poem of mine which was greeted with bursts of uproarious laughter but this is a truly serious poem i asseverated only to be greeted with renewed and this time more uproarious laughter nettled by this misunderstanding i put the poem in my pocket saying well young ladies since you do not believe me to be serious i shall not read the poem at which the audience almost went into convulsions of laughter humor is a function of nationality the same joke as related by an american a scotchman an irishman a frenchman carries with it a distinctive racial flavor and individuality of approach indeed it is open to question whether most humor is not essentially local in its nature requiring some specialized knowledge of some particular locality it would be quite impossible for an italian on his native heath to understand that great political satirist mr dooley on the negro problem for example after reading george Ady's fables in slang mr andrew lang was driven to the desperate conclusion that humor varies with the parallels of latitude a joke in chicago being a riddle in london if one would lay his finger upon the secret of mark twain's world-wide popularity as a humorist he would find that secret primarily in the universality and humanity of his humor mark twain is a master in the art of broad contrast incongruity lurks on the surface of his humor and there is about it a staggering and cyclopean surprise but these are mere surface qualities more or less common though at lower power 
to all forms of humor. Nor is his international vogue as a humorist to be attributed to any tricks of style, to any breadth of knowledge, or even to any depth of intellectuality. His hold upon the world is due to qualities not of the head, but of the heart. I once heard Mr. Clemens say that humor is the key to the hearts of men, for it springs from the heart. And worthy of record is his dictum that there is far more of feeling than of thought in genuine humor. Mark Twain succeeded in tickling the midriff of the English-speaking races with a single story, and in time he showed himself to be not only a man of letters, but also a man of action. His humor has been defined as the sunny break of his serious purpose. Horace Walpole has said that the world is a comedy to the man of thought, a tragedy to the man of feeling. To the great humorist, to Mark Twain, the world was a tragic comedy. Like Smile Faggot, he seemed at times to feel that grief is the most real and important thing in the world, because it separates us from happiness. He was an exemplar of the highest, truest, sincerest humor, perfectly fulfilling George Meredith's definition, If you laugh all round him, tumble him, roll him about, deal him a smack, and drop a tear on him, own his likeness to you and yours to your neighbor, spare him as little as you shun, pity him as much as you expose, it is the spirit of humor that is moving you. Mark Twain's fun was light-hearted and insouciant, his pathos genuine and profound. He is above all, said that oldest of English journals, the spectator, the fearless upholder of all that is clean, noble, straightforward, innocent, and manly. If he is a jester, he jests with the mirth of the happiest of the Puritans. He has read much of English knighthood, and translated the best of it into his living pages, and he has assuredly already won a high degree in letters in having added more than any writer since Dickens to the gaiety of the empire of the English language. Mark Twain's humor flowed warm from the heart. He enjoyed to the utmost those two inalienable blessings, laughter and the love of friends. He woke the laughter of an epoch and numbered a world for his friends. He is the true consolidator of nations, said Mr. Augustine Burrell. His delightful humor is of the kind which dissipates and destroys national prejudices. His truth and his honor, his love of truth and his love of honor, overflow all boundaries. He has made the world better by his presence. End of The Humorist, Part 2, read by John Greenman.